If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 6? If you didn't bring a Bible or don't have one, there should be a red one uh, in your chair uh, in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take this one home with you. This is our gift to you so that you um, have the Word of God available to you. Genesis 6, it's right at the very beginning of the Bible. It's on page 3. Um, and we're going to be looking at verse 5 through the end of the chapter. We've been in the book of Genesis trying to do two things. One, we're, we're asking, what does this ancient book tell us about what does it mean to have faith today? And then secondly, we're trying to trace the threads of Jesus even in the Old Testament. And hopefully we'll do both of those things today. Let's go ahead and read this passage and pray and then um, get into the sermon. Genesis 6, chapter, sorry, chapter 6, starting at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside out and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to the keep so come in to you to keep them alive. And also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up, shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now through your spirit, would you illumine it to us, convict us of our sin, draw us near to your grace, empower us to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. 
the story of Noah's Ark is often relegated to children's church. I mean, it's in kids' Bibles, on the cover even. You see an ark with the animals. Uh, nurseries often are painted with the animals and a boat. Um, you know, it's become something uh, to sort of behold and look at uh, and, and find amazement with. There's a museum in Kentucky, maybe you've been, where they have built a life-size replica of Noah's Ark. It is a sight to behold. But this story, um, I feel like we have done an injustice towards. Because this story is uh, not for kids. I mean, yes, the, the whole of Scripture is for everyone. But this story does not end well for almost everyone in the story, except for a few providentially chosen people. The story of Noah is a story about judgment. It's a story about God's wrath against a sinful world. It's a story of destruction. And Jesus himself uses this story, the story of Noah, to warn his listeners, including you and I, that there is coming another judgment. And he uses this story in order to prepare us for that judgment. It used to be common in the church to talk more frequently about God's judgment. We don't do that as much now, but it used to be much more common. Perhaps you're thinking of like the, the times of the Puritans. Uh, there was an 18th century pastor, preacher, teacher named Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you've heard of him. And he wrote what is perhaps one of the most famous sermons ever written in the history of the Western church. And it was called this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was all about God's judgment. And we don't talk about it now, but I'm, I'm wondering why. Because most religious scholars look to Jonathan Edwards and his sermons and sermons like that and credit that with with creating the greatest Christian revival that has ever hit the Western church, what we know as the First Great Awakening, all because they talked about God's judgment. But when we hear, when we hear the word judgment, or when we hear a pastor like me say something about judgment, the picture that we have in our minds is of someone standing on the corner of a busy street on a soapbox with a card in hand and a megaphone calling people to repent or face the judgment of God. It is a negative picture. That's why we don't talk about judgment. I hope that today, as we look through the story of Noah, that we would come to understand that God's judgment is not something that we should avoid talking about, but it is actually an invitation to us to draw closer to and experience a deeper level of God's love, mercy, and grace. And in order to do that, we have to ask three questions. Where does this judgment come from? Why do we actually want it to come? And how can we get safely on the other side? Where does it come from? Why do we want it? And how do we get through it? Those are the questions we're going to ask of this story. So first, where does God's judgment 
come from. The first thing we have to see in this passage is that God's anger is not arbitrary. It, it is, God is not temperamental in his actions. He does not act, especially with regard to his anger, out of this uncontrolled passion or unrestrained emotion. Unlike the ancient gods and their mythologies who are temperamental and do not have any self-control or self-discipline, the God of the Bible we see is rational. His actions make sense. There's reasoning behind it. And in these opening verses, we read about that. We see in these opening verses what God saw, how it made him feel, and what he decided to do about it. It's, it's, there's order and calculation behind God's decision. So what did God see? Look at verse 5. He sees the extensiveness and the intensity of sin. He's, we he looks and he sees that every intention of every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Every intention of humanity was stained with sin. There are no pure motivations, even in the best case. Every thought, every word, every deed has been brought under the effects of sin. There is evil always in our hearts. It cannot go away. This is the fruit of the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of mankind out of a state of innocence and, and grace in the garden. When our first parents rebelled against God, they were kicked out of the garden, and the effects of the fall have come down into our own lives. Every human is born into this world in this new state of fallen creation where every intention of our hearts is evil. There is sin everywhere. Just look how far, far fallen creation has come in six chapters. In chapter one, God looked and saw that it was good. But now God looks and sees that it is corrupted. That is what he sees. How did it make him feel? Well, it hurt him. Look at verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Seeing the sinfulness of the world and the wickedness of mankind brought pain to God's heart. Does it surprise you to hear that the, the God of creation, God Almighty, feels pain? Paul tells us in Ephesians that when we sin, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Our pain hurts God. Have you ever watched a friend or a family member make bad decision after bad decision? How does that make you feel looking at them? You feel for them. You feel pain in your heart for them. Your heart breaks watching them and their lives falling apart especially those whom you love, and when you don't feel like you can step in and help, our hearts hurt. And that is what the Lord of creation is feeling towards the world, towards his creation, towards his, his image bearers, whom he loves. He sees their decisions that they're making day after day, night after night, and it is breaking his heart. So what is the Lord determined to do? Verse 7 says, 
I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. He sees evil is spreading. He knows that it's got great pain on his heart, and so he steps in. He acts to bring judgment. He's going to blot out mankind, blot out the sin of the world, like like how we blot out a stain on a shirt with water. He is going to wash away the sin in the world. But at this point, you might ask, how can God, an emotional God who feels things, who feels love, how can that God bring judgment? Doesn't the Bible tell us that God is love and that in him there is no darkness whatsoever? Didn't Jesus tell us to not resist someone who attacks us or hurts us, but rather to turn the other cheek? The God of this story with Noah does not seem like the God of the rest of the Bible, certainly not the God of Jesus. How can an all-loving God be so wrathful and judgmental? But is love and wrath really mutually exclusive? We know how our hearts feel when we see a loved one making bad decisions. Our heart breaks for them. But how does your heart feel when you see someone whom you love being hurt by someone else? You, you have anger at, at the person or something that's hurting the person you love. And that anger can sometimes turn into this righteous indignation or righteous wrath. Because of your deep love for someone, when that person is threatened and is being hurt, your response should be to reach out and help. And that might mean resisting the evil. If you saw someone hurting someone you loved and you felt no feelings towards that offender, if you felt indifferent about the situation, I I would question whether you love that person or not. The deeper your love for someone, the deeper your anger will be when that person is threatened. This is the heart of God's judgment and wrath. His heart and his love for his creation. It is because of his love that he determines to put an end to both the sin and the sinner. Because it is multiplying on the earth. Psalm 145 tells us that the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. And he is loving towards all of his creation. He will preserve all who love him. But... The wicked he will destroy because it threatens his creation. The Bible tells us that God's judgment flows out of his deep love for his creation. That's where God's judgment comes from. It comes from the very heart of God, his love for creation, his love for his image bearers. If you're still not convinced that judgment isn't something to avoid talking about after that first question, let's ask the second question then. Why do we actually want God's judgment? I'm convinced that we actually want it. While God is saying that he's going to blot out every man on the earth, we do see that he spares some. 
verse 18, we read that God is going to establish a covenant with Noah, a promise. And he's going to tell Noah, together with his wife and his three sons and their wives and two of every living thing, to come onto the ark and be delivered from judgment. What do we see happening here in this promise? In saving Noah, in in saving his family, and in saving these animals, we see that the judgment that God is going to bring is not an end in itself. The, The purpose of judgment is not to judge. There is something more that God is doing in this judgment. The purpose of judgment is renewal and restoration. He's pulling out Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and all the animals and keeping them safe so that when the flood is over and the world has been restored, that Noah can repopulate the world and start again. We didn't read this, but later in chapter 7 or chapter 8, when the waters subside, Noah leaves the ark and God tells his family to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This is the very command that God gave to mankind in the creation story. We see with Noah and his family, God is recreating the world. Judgment leads to renewal. We have to get this. The ultimate purpose of judgment is not obliteration. It is restoration. God is not blotting out all flesh from the world in the story of Noah, ultimately because he wants to obliterate humanity. No. He's sending his judgment because ultimately he wants to bring about restoration of his creation. Restoration is always the goal of judgment. Sometimes that judgment comes through floods or fires, yes, but it always has as its goal restoration. What do we do when our clothes are dirty or our plates are dirty? We wash them because washing away the dirt leads to restoration. In the New Testament, Peter, one of the apostles, writes and tells us that after Noah with his promise of the rainbow, God is promising never to send a flood again on the earth, but that there would become a judgment one day that would come through fire, the fires of judgment on the last day. But similarly, the fires of judgment are ultimately about obliterating the world. They're about restoring the world. When a metal worker is is trying to purify a precious metal like gold or silver, what do they do? They put it in a crucible and then heat it up with fire so that it can burn off the dross and the impurities, and what you're left with is the pure metal. The fire leads to restoration. Judgment always has as its ultimate goal restoration in mind. It is That is something that we want. That is something that we all want. Does anyone here really think that the world is fine the way it is right now? No. This world is a mess. Look, we hear all the time about shootings, kidnappings, 
murder, accidents, disasters. This world is a mess. But the brokenness of the world isn't just outside of us. It's also at home within us. Like, has anyone ever hurt you? Has anyone ever gossiped about you or slandered you, misrepresented you? Has anyone ever betrayed you? It's not just the sinful world against you. We also know that our bodies are decaying. This world is not the way that it is supposed to be. And that is why God is going to bring judgment, to restore the world, to get rid of what's wrong with the world. That is the purpose of judgment, to bring justice to those who have been treated unfairly, to bring vengeance against those who have oppressed others, to bring liberation to those who are held captive. This is actually the mission of Jesus. In Luke 4, when he begins his ministry, he preaches his first sermon out of Isaiah, and he stands up in Luke 4 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. To do what? To proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captive, the recovery of sight to the blind, at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' mission is a mission of restoration, but it does come through judgment. That is the purpose of judgment, the renewal of all things. And this is the picture that we get at the end of the story, at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 21, we hear this loud voice proclaim that the new heavens and the new earth have come. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. Why? Because the former things have passed away. The heavens and the earth have been renewed. They are being restored. That is what Noah's story tells us. The ultimate goal of judgment is the renewal of all things. If you have ever been hurt by someone, if you ever wanted to take revenge on someone, if you've ever felt the pain of this broken world in your life, then you want judgment. There's something deep within you that knows that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, and you long for God to bring judgment, to set things right, to restore the world. We want God's judgment. But then that brings up this tricky situation. We know that his judgment comes out of his love and that it's going to restore all things But we know in this story that almost everyone in the world dies in this judgment. And we know that when Jesus talks about the judgment and the coming restoration of all things, he talks about it like this. There is a narrow door to get through this judgment. So many people will find it, but only few will actually pass through it. That's the tricky situation. We want the judgment, but we don't know yet how. How can we safely get through judgment and be delivered through it into the other side? Noah's story can help us answer that question too. We just read that God is going to establish a covenant with Noah to save him from the flood. What made Noah special? What made Noah unique that God would establish this promise with him? 
In verse 9, we read about Noah's relationship with God. First, he was righteous. This is the first time in all of Scripture that someone is called righteous. It's a word that means accepted by the Lord. And we'll read in Genesis 15 that righteousness, this right standing with God, is not something that sinful humanity can accomplish or achieve on our own, but is credited to us, is is given to us, it is received by us as a gift because of our faith in God. We see Noah's faith evidenced by his willingness to go and build the ark. His evidence, the evidence of his faith is a life lived in obedience. That's what we read next. Not only was he righteous, he was also blameless in his generation. That doesn't mean that Noah was without sin or incapable of sinning. We're going to see very clearly that after the flood, Noah is just as susceptible to sin as any one of us. Rather, to be called blameless is to live a life of integrity where the behavior of one's life matches up with the faith that he holds. He was blameless. He sought to have his life match his faith. And then finally, we see that Noah walked with the Lord. A description of an ongoing and vibrant relationship with God. And it's because of this relationship with the Lord, and because of his trust in him, his faith in the Lord that is evidenced through his life that the Lord calls him to build an ark and gives him safe passage through the judgment that is going to come. Imagine for a moment what everyone else might have been thinking about Noah when Noah started talking about what God had told him to do. Scripture doesn't tell us those responses, but I think we can imagine it. A few years ago, there was a Hollywood movie made about the story of Noah. And and I I love when directors take creative liberty about Bible stories, not not because I don't like the story, but because you can sort of imagine through the movie how the other characters in the story respond to the story that we don't read about in Scripture. In this case, I enjoyed watching in the movie how the people of the world reacted to Noah. Maybe you've wondered that too. Imagine for a moment. Some probably laughed. (laughs) You serious, Noah? You're going to build a boat? You serious God's going to rain down water? I'm sure some laughed at him. Some probably even mocked him, thought he was crazy. Ridiculous. Some might have wondered, wait a minute, it's, it's going to flood? How, how can I get on the boat? It's a good exercise when reading the Bible that we look for ourselves in the story. To ask yourself, what character do I most line up with? Am I Noah? Are you Noah? Are you a righteous man or woman? Are you blameless amongst your generation? Do you daily walk with the Lord? Is that you? Or are you like the other people, mocking, laughing, doubting? 
thankfully, those aren't the only two characters in the story. Because we also read that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I wonder what they were thinking. Like everyone else, they didn't hear from God directly. They had to take Noah's word for it. Like everyone else, they might have thought that the idea of a worldwide flood was just ridiculous. They might have thought, no, this doesn't sound like the God that I know. Like everyone else, the idea of getting into a boat to escape judgment seems crazy or even too good to be true. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. You hear that there is a judgment coming on all of the earth because everyone in the world is a sinner, including you. Then you hear that there is a way to pass through that judgment, to be spared of the flood and be part of the new creation that God is going to prepare. You hear that the only way that you can pass through that coming judgment is to hitch a ride with your father Noah. Why? Because he was a righteous man. He trusted in the Lord. He had a relationship with God. And so the Lord made a covenant with him and in his household that if they trusted in God's promise and held fast to the righteous man, that they too would be spared judgment, even though they, like the rest of the world, deserved to die. If we are to find ourselves in anyone in this story, it is right there. Because the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel is this. There is a judgment coming for us. At the end of time, the Lord will pour out his wrath upon the world. He will destroy the wicked. And the bad news is that apart from his grace and mercy, we are counted among the wicked. But the Lord has offered us safe passage through judgment. He has given us a way out. He has promised us that we can escape the judgment. How? By hitching a ride with the righteous man, the righteous man that Noah points us to, Jesus Christ. We hold fast to him. We place our faith in him. We look to him for deliverance. And when we do that, we are guaranteed, we are promised that we will be spared that judgment. And that is sure. What does that look like? What does it mean to hitch a ride to Jesus? We hitch ourselves to him when we see that on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the judgment that we deserve. Noah's sons cling to Noah because they could trust that Noah would be spared judgment. We cling to Jesus because we know that Jesus took away our judgment. He took it upon himself. When Christ suffered on the cross He did that for our sins. He absorbed God's judgment in himself. Now we are assured there is no condemnation. There is no more judgment for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. For anyone who hitches a ride with Jesus. To put it another way, 
There is judgment at the end of time coming for this world. But for those who have hitched themselves to Jesus, that judgment has already come. It has already happened on the cross. There is no more judgment for anyone who is in Christ. If you are a Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's judgment has been poured out already? It's just been poured out on Jesus. That means there's no more anger or wrath against your sin. It means there is only love and grace and mercy. There might be loving discipline, like any good father would discipline his children, but there is no more wrath against you. Do you believe that? When you find yourself in regret, maybe you've done something that you wish you wouldn't have done, maybe you've said something you wish you could take back, Maybe you've woken up and felt guilty in those moments asking yourself, does God still love me? Do you fear that God is judgmental toward you? The story of Noah and the flood is an invitation for you to believe right here, right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He loves you. There is nothing in all of the world that can separate you from his love. He has you. You are his. If you're not yet a Christian, if you haven't yet hitched yourself to Jesus, what is stopping you? The story of Noah is a warning. God's patience with you will not last forever. He does care for those who love him, but the wicked he will destroy The story of Noah is also an invitation for you to trust in him, to trust in the deliverance offered to us in Jesus. Like it might sound crazy that Jesus on the cross dying for you can save you from your sins. People might laugh at that or mock that. It might sound too good to be true, but it is true. He can deliver us. He can restore you. He can make you new. So trust in him. Trust in the righteousness of Christ. Give yourself over to him. Ask him. Say, Lord, I want to be saved. Will you bring me through to the other side? Will you unite me to Jesus so that he can deliver me? The judgment of God was poured out on Jesus instead of us. Why? Because he loves us because he wants to renew us. The story of Noah is an invitation for us right here, right now, to hitch ourselves to Jesus, the only one who can deliver us through the flood. Let's pray.